Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part two of this podcast with Delamitri's Justin Curry. Now, the band were dropped from their label after their first album, and they went off to the States, which proved to be the most formative period of their life. Here, Justin talks about their success in the late 80s, the dissolving of the band in 2002, the return to the studio for their latest album, but first, that period in the States. The other thing that was musically formative was we went into a lot of college radio stations, because quite a few college radio stations played the first Delamitri record, uh, and... We would talk to these guys and go, what else are you listening to? And, you know, they would play some really interesting American indie music, but they were also listening to, like, deeply mainstream, white, Midwestern shit, you know. Uh, and that, and they didn't really see any difference between, uh, you know, Bob Seger and R.E.M. They were, they were it, was rock, it was alternative rock to them, you know, or, or it was just rock. Uh, and that was... That just blew all the kind of punk rock uh, puritanism away. It just blew it away because it didn't matter anymore. You, you could, if these guys thought we were the same as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, then we were. We were, the, we were the same genre. It was just rock music. So uh, that it just meant we could take the straight jacket of taste and, uh, um, you know, uh, yes, the straight jacket of taste just went and uh, it meant that we could write things in any mode we like we could write things in a blues mode we could write thing, things in a country mode um, and also actually prior to going to America we, we started listening to quite a lot of country music and that was quite a big change as well but yes the, the American trip 
changed us as people and as musicians, uh, and it completely changed our our opinion of of Americans, whom we snootily thought were just all big fat idiots that you know like Ronald Reagan before we went over there, and then we we lived and effectively worked with these people for days at a time, and were overwhelmed by their generosity, their intelligence, their you know their cultural acumen. They were just all these people were just fascinating, you know, interesting, uh, really deeply decent people. Um, so yes, America became uh, uh, unlike other bands' experience of America, which you see it off a tour bus, and you can you can end up being extremely cynical about America in, in that environment. We'd we'd been living with people's parents and 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 with our extended families and, and uh, sleeping in their bedrooms and. Uh, Swimming in swimming in their pools or or you know sitting in their yards drinking. Shit. Did that make you more focused as as a band or you know particularly you and Ian obviously as as uh, the, the writers? Did it make yeah. you much more focused in terms of where you wanted to go, what you wanted to do, and that meant that when you came back, I don't know what the situation was and how soon you got another record contract, but when you came yeah. back, you knew exactly where you were going. Yeah, that, I mean, we went, we went to the States to achieve two things, to get round it in one piece and to come back with a, a, an indie record deal. Uh, and we'd, we'd set our sights on a, a label called Big Time in Los Angeles, which was, yeah, just an indie record company. So... We spoke to them when we were out there and when we came back, they sent us a bit of money to do some demos. So we did a bunch of demos that were, I, I guess would have been probably, I suppose would constitute the sort of second Delimitri indie album. Um, and we felt that if we, if we could get through that experience, we could do anything. We, we really felt we could do anything because, um, uh, you know, you know. I suppose like the, the the Beatles coming back from Hamburg. If you know, they must have thought if we can play like twelve hours a day, we can fucking do anything. If we can get these drunken sailors dancing, you know, or stop them fighting, and if we can just improvise, you know, daft bits of comedy, uh, uh, then you know we can. If we can get to that, we can get to anything. And you're sleeping on the fucking roadside and running away from electric storms and having band meetings at the Grand Canyon and being genuinely hungry for months at a time. Um, you, you just think, fuck me, we did that, you know. And it, it, made, it made us feel like we were better than anybody else, you know, um, because nobody else, had, as, as far as we knew, no other bands in, in our milieu had, had done anything like this. Uh, actually going to the States with no money and just and kind of busking it, you know. Um, it's an incredibly so, brave thing to do. I think it's well, an amazing. We were, we were, yeah, I mean, it was brave. The, the, the bravest person was our manager, Barbara, and that she she had the, the chutzpah to put it together and think that it might work. And, it, it, and of course, it didn't work. I mean, it, 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 it didn't work because we didn't raise the amount of money we thought we were going to raise. Um but in some ways, in some ways, it did work because we did all the gigs. Um, I mean, we had to beg, you know, we had to beg for money, but we we did do the gigs. Um, so, but then what happened after we got back was 
we did the big time demos, which were indie. They were probably a bit less indie than the first Christmas album, but not much. But then Ian and I started writing separate things that were very sort of mainstream in Americana. And then we started thinking, shit, these songs are really mainstream. Is there any point in putting mainstream songs out on a small label? Um, so because our music just morphed quite quickly post the American trip into, um, into mainstream rock music, we, we very quickly went from focusing on getting a small deal and doing a small scale thing to thinking we should sign to another major, major label. You know, we've got, we've got the experience, we're writing pop songs, we, we should go for it. And so we, that was a complete shift of, of um, planning, you know. I remember being... Strategy, uh, I should say. I remember being on MTV at that time, MTV Europe, which was started in 1987. And I used to interview people and present the news on the channel. And yeah. it was the era of 87. And I think you came along in that sort of era with um, yeah. waking hours. But your first two singles, and I think I've got this right, your first two singles didn't chart, did they? So it, no. So it must have also been a sort of, hit at that point okay we've got our direction we know where we want to go we've created yeah. songs that were we really can stand behind now because they're yeah. really part of us and then the first sense is oh shit this doesn't work so how how was that and how did you get through it or did that process just happen quickly and in a nice way <laughs> well it did happen in a nice way because we got radio play um so Kiss the Sing Goodbye, which came out, I think, in August 89, I think. Um, uh, it got, I think it got a bit of Radio 1 play, certainly at night, but it got a lot of commercial radio play. So I would sit in my bedroom at night and tune to the stations, and I would hear it a lot. So that was super encouraging. And also it sounded really good in the radio. So that, that, that made us think, look, we've done the right thing here. We've, you know, we've, we've made the right sort of record. Because... Um, Every time we heard those, the, the, the um, sort of certainly kisses thing behind the radio, it just leapt out because it, 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 it wasn't soaked in all that 80s reverb like everything else was at the time. Um, so we thought we've got, we might have a bit of a chance here. Um, so we weren't distressed that, that the first two singles didn't get into the top 40. I mean, they saw, I think they did okay. I think they charted outside the top 40 fairly respectably. Um, and we were also pretty convinced that A&M were going to keep going because uh, we had a two-album firm deal, which is quite unusual in those days. So we knew we were going to get a second album. So we weren't, we weren't panicking about these mainstream things not being hits. And the, also the audience was growing a bit because we had this radio play on, on local radio stations. So if we did a university gig... Uh, less people would drift away. They would More of them would stick around to watch us. So it felt like we were going in the right direction. But, you know, as, as you're, you know, sort of hinting, the absolute key in those days was you had to get into the top 40 because if you got into the top 40, you'd be on the television, you might get top of the pops, and then overnight you were a successful group, you know. It was, it was just that, it was that simple. That was the equation. To get top 40, get top of the pops, you're famous. Yeah, I mean, it was the equation. I know it's not the equation for a, a band because the equation is 
am I doing what I want to do in life? Am yes. I creating something for me that's worthwhile and that the yes, audience but we will, like? But, but it's we, very interesting as well, I think, because it is something that you need from an audience, that sort of feedback, and that is in a massive way if you get that success. Yeah, uh, but our, our thing was, because we'd been an arty indie band and then suddenly we'd started writing mainstream songs, we were very... Um, we were we, we had commercial ambition for the songs because we we loved the songs I and mean, we loved waking hours, but we didn't think it, it we could justify it unless it was in the charts. So it does. I mean, not because we wanted to be successful, but because that was that the charts are where that shit belonged. You know, you know the the first time the album didn't belong in the charts. It belonged in you know indie clubs and 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 in polytechnics. You know, uh, that that's where that music sat. But because we'd written these fucking mainstream, slightly Americana things, um, they didn't make any sense outside of the, the mainstream. So we, we were we were really keen to have a hit, really keen to have a hit. I mean, again, not, not for commercial reasons so much as uh, the, the, the sort of creative sense that that's where that stuff belongs. You know, it belongs... You know, we want to be. We want housewives who listen to Radio Two to to hear this stuff. Uh, we didn't want them to hear the old stuff because they they wouldn't have understood it. You know, um, forgive the term housewife, but that, that was that that was the thinking at the time. You know, I um, am a housewife. <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> You've just described me because <laughs> I was listening to it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's made me very happy. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In terms of success, though, When Nothing Ever Happens came out, and it was massive, and MTV played it to death at that uh, that time. And um, I just wonder whether it changed your mentality in any way to have that success and to suddenly be recognisable and to have that confirmation in some way. Yeah. The validation was good because, you know, the, the incredible snobbery of the the sort of hipper parts of the Glasgow music scene had always thumbed their nose at Delamitri, which we took some pride in, but it, we took a hell of a lot more pride in in beating them at their own game, which was you know being in the charts. So that was that was very uh, uh, revenge is sweet. Revenge really is sweet, and I, 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 you know uh, don't let anybody tell you different. Uh, but um, other than that, I don't. I might be wrong. I don't think it had that much effect because we were so long in the tooth by that point. I mean, you know, I'd been in a band called Delmuchis in 1980, so it'd been at least ten years of a young person's life that I'd been doing this, and then I was people were recognising me in the street. So I think we found it. It was a bit odd, but we found it very amusing. Partly because it immediately made our lives easier. You know, we had we were playing nicer venues, we had nicer dressing rooms, we had a nicer van. What's not to love about that? You know, things are actually improving just in terms of the quality of our, our lives. The the sort of fame aspect we dealt with immediately by nipping it in the buds. We didn't we didn't play up to it. We didn't glam up. We didn't start buying expensive clothes. We didn't change. We didn't move out of our flats in the middle of Glasgow. We didn't stop going to the pubs that we went to. We were just there, you know. Um, so that 
the slight weirdness of being known uh, dissipated very quickly because we just we just didn't react to it. We just we just kind of ignored it. Uh, and Glasgow is quite a good place to be on the telly last night because people will just they'll be quite blunt with you. You know, um, I mean, I, I tried to the day after we were on top of the pops the first time. I got, got I tried to get on a bus just around the corner from my flat to go into town, and the bus it was yeah the, the bus driver the bus driver said what are you doing I said I'm just going to town he went get you fuck I said so what do you mean what do you mean he went you don't talk to the pops I say you're not getting the fucking bus and he wouldn't he wouldn't let me on the bus <laughs> so I mean, I mean I know that it's a bit of a cliche that you know, Cleveland and Glasgow and these post-industrial towns are are quite f- sort of frank, or the people are quite frank and bald with their the way they the way they react to um, people people that they perceive that might be sort of elevating themselves. I think there is some truth in it. So we, you know, I, I mean, I think if we'd lived in London, it'd be a lot weirder, and I think we'd have ended up going up our own fundament if we'd lived in London. But living living in Glasgow, it was partly people were really pleased for you and really proud of you. And also partly they, they would just take the, the, the absolute piss out of you. So that none, none of that felt too mad. Uh, and also we felt like we deserved it. We felt like we'd, we'd worked really hard. We made a really good first record, which got savaged by the critics because of a mistake with the record company we'd made a really good second record which is very different from the first and we thought that, yeah we've it felt totally deserved to be you know flying around europe doing a promo tour and eating in nice restaurants or whatever the whatever the glamorous side of that is i don't know well one of the things that i think really uh speaks for the quality of the band is that you continued on a on that level of success till about two thousand and two as a band, and yeah. um, that's a long period. I mean, yeah. if you look at pop bands, I mean, I, we did research at MTV in, in late eighties about the length of a pop band or the length of a pop star. Their main part of the career is about four years, and yeah. there, you know, you went on for like 12, 14 years of success. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the success dipped, but by ninety seven. The success dipped, but we were uh, we were on Radio One over those three albums consistently with every single, you know, with like all four singles from each album. Uh, radio One played us to death, uh, and and commercial radio, the big commercial radio stations played us to death. Why that is, I don't know. I think there was a lot of luck involved. The record company was certainly a lot to do with that. They had a brilliant promotions department. They were. They were very supportive of the record company. They let you do things in your own way. They didn't try and force you to do things that you were uncomfortable with. And because we'd never been part of, uh, I mean, apart from the early postcard years, we, I mean, we, we weren't part of the postcard scene anyway, because we'd never been part of a scene or a movement or a, a thing, we just slipped between the, the, the cracks at, at radio. And radio loved us because we were sort of rock. We were sort of pop. Uh, we weren't. You know, we weren't sort of pre-Brit pop. We weren't uh, uh, indie dance. We weren't anything trendy. So that I think a, a, a lot of radio producers just thought, well, that's just reliable. You know, we can play that, and it's not going to frighten the horses, and it works. Um, so yeah, uh, and and we did make radio-friendly 
records, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, um, and we thought about it. We thought we, we, we were very concerned with how they were mixed, and I mean, especially by the time we got to Twisted. Um, and we were, we were really concerned with being a pop rock band. We wanted to be a rock band live, but have radio hits, you know. And um, we got, as you're saying, we got away with it for quite a while, you know, which was quite remarkable. Without any great pressure, there was no pressure from like the tabloid press. There was no huge pressure from the record company to, to move up another gear, to be playing stadiums. You know, we just carried on in this middle ground of the mainstream, which was an extremely um, uh, comfortable place to be. Was waning success a reason that in 2002 that you went your separate ways for a while? Yeah. And so that was a very comfortable decision between you. That wasn't something that that everyone was like, oh, no, I want to carry on. And you were saying, no, I'm going to go. It was something that was a mutual agreement. Well, that decision was made between Ian and me and our manager, John. Uh, So we got dropped by... AM that had become wasn't AM then, it was Mercury at that point. It had been bought over so many times, and, uh, it wasn't the label that it had been. Um, so we got dropped by Mercury, which we which we were uh, more than happy about. Uh, and we sort of took stock for a couple of months. Um, and my assumption was that we would just sign to a sort of beggar's banquet type label and make albums on smaller budgets and play to smaller crowds and keep going for another 10 years or something. That was my assumption, but then we had a meeting and... um... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ian and John said, I mean, that could be quite depressing. And I thought about it and, uh, you know, and I thought about some of the kind of half-empty halls that we played on the last tour in 2002 in the UK and I thought yeah that could be quite depressing <laughs> uh, and also in those days this was before the days when you could make money on the road it was before ticket prices went through the fucking roof so um, it, that didn't look particularly appealing so we just stopped we just and, and nobody there was we'd we'd done Delamitri nobody wanted it the audience didn't want any more you know they, they had nobody had bought the, the last album can you do me good? Um, there was only one single from that, which didn't get played in the radio. It was it was definitely over, you know, definitely over. I mean, you said you'd done Delamitri. You went off and you've made four albums in in between. And I and I've got to jump, but you you made four albums in between. But then the decision mm. came um, to reform, as it were, yeah, and to yeah. create another album. 
why did that come about or how did that come about? Well, it, it, it came about because the reason we stopped is that the phone wasn't ringing. There were, there were not queues of promoters wanting us to play in Germany or uh, the United States or the UK or Australia or any of the places that we'd previously been reasonably successful. Um, and we didn't really think the phone would ever ring again. I mean, I suspected that it might because I'd seen a few bands just dis- drop off the radar uh, and then all of a sudden come back into the sort of public consciousness for weird, strange reasons, like a, something, you know, a track would crop up in a film or, or you know, something would get, something would get played on a, public holiday on the radio and people go, oh God, that band were quite good. So I had, a, I had a vague feeling that the phone might start ringing again, but I wasn't terribly sure. So yes, I was just getting on with doing what I was doing and so was Ian. Um, and then our manager called up, in, I suppose 2013 or something, 20, maybe 2012, and said, oh, you know, your agent thinks that you might be able to play Hammersmith Odeon. And so it, that, that was it, really. That was, oh. And I think we just quite like the idea of playing Hammersmith Odeon and and making some money because by by then you could make money on the road because as I say all the money had gone out of CD sales because because recorded music was free and all the money had gone into the live arena because all of a sudden audiences who weren't buying records had spare money to spend on uh, concert tickets and so people just started going to a lot more gigs and paying a lot more money for the, for the gigs so that was really interesting. It's like, well, fuck, we could actually, we don't have to go make a record and, and get on that, this treadmill of promoting album tour and all that sort of stuff. We could just do, go and do a bunch of gigs for fun, but make a lot of money. Uh, what's not to love? What's not to love about that? So that, that's really what happened was that the, the music business had turned on its head in the meantime uh, and gigs became viable um a viable activity in, in terms of finance, you know, which they weren't before. They were, you know, everybody's gigs in the nineties were effectively supported by the recorded music industry. You know, they were all underwritten by record companies. That's why tickets were so cheap. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We decided on the, the 2014 tour not to do any new material. Uh, and then by the time we got to 20, the 2018 tour, we'd started writing new material for that tour. So it was it was a sort of natural progression. I was the most resistant. Ashley, our drummer, and Ian were really up for it. They really thought it'd be a great thing to do another record. I canvassed a lot of my mates and said, why would we do this? Because I, 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 I really hate bands that, that piss off for 10 years, then come back and make another record and sully their back catalogue. That just drives me nuts. Um, so I was really against it. But all my mates went, oh, it'd be brilliant, it'd be brilliant, brilliant. I mean, to a person, every, every I spoke to was really excited about it. So that made me think, well, I better go and write some fucking Delamitri songs then. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of Delamitri songs. And I thought, oh, these are, these are quite good. I wouldn't have written these if there hadn't been the possibility of Delamitri making an album well that's quite interesting and then I, I started to really enjoy writing for write, writing for the group again you know because previously I'd really enjoyed not writing for the group I'd really enjoyed just writing anything I 
anything I cared to write. But I was writing for a group is a more much more focused uh, thing, you know, and it's it's more you're more limited in your scope of what you can write for a band, I think. And that, that's a good thing because it forces you to think in different ways. One thing that I think, well, I'm, I'm going to say that maybe there's something in, in, in common because I'm a screenwriter. And what I do when I write screenplay is I create a world and that world is then I put a story within that world around the theme that I want to explore. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I always think that is something similar to creating music because you're creating I don't know which comes first but you're creating the music and the sort of lyrics go in and what you do with the lyrics is somehow they um, sometimes go against what the music stands for the music is you know uh, it's it's positive and it gives you a good feeling and the lyrics are sometimes really unexpected, you know, yeah. and uh, and I wouldn't say negative, but they've got this sort of touch to them, which is really, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. So how do you go, go about creating a song and what do you what do you want to achieve by it? Because that dynamic is really Delamitri dynamic yeah. within a song. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm not conscious of that too much and I wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, I, as a writer yourself, you know that self-consciousness is the enemy of all creativity. So that's not something that I consciously think about. But if I'm co-writing with Ian, the music will tell me what the lyric is. So as you're saying, even though a lot of the songs that bands like us write, the music's quite positive and sometimes the lyrics can be quite... Uh, it's hard to find an adjective uh, that isn't the word dark, which is such a sort of meaningless cliche, but... Um, yes, the lyrics can be more negative, um, and that can work quite nicely. Uh, but I think the, are you, are you, I think I'm pretty sure I get the the sourness from the music, you know. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, it's much easier to create drama if there's things going wrong in a in a song than if things are going right. So I was thinking about this the, the other day. Actually, because I remembered that in the mid-90s, I wrote two absolutely positive love songs, you know, just really, there's there's not a hint of cynicism or poison or um, resentment in them at all, which is completely unusual unusual of me. And I was thinking about those songs and going, oh, yeah, they're quite good songs, those, you know. And I was thinking, I wonder why I didn't write more of those. And it's because... It's. I think it's because those sorts of songs you start repeating yourself really quickly. You, the, the 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 kind of imagery that you can reach for to to describe contentment and love and gaiety uh, is much more limited than the kind of language that you can use to describe resentment, jealousy, um, pain suffering, all, all, all these things, there's a lot more in there, you know, just to get your teeth around. And also we connect to them more, don't we? Because we've all experienced those aspects of relationships. Yeah. It's not all light and fun yeah. and, you know, I love you, but let's for, get married, it's over. <laughs> but frustratingly, people do people do connect with really up, happy things as well. And I really wish we could do that because when we do gigs, and I was thinking about David Bowie's Let's Dance the other day. I mean, you know, if you, you know, you hear that song and it makes you feel pretty good, you know. Uh, but he hated it, thinking, didn't he? He didn't like it. 
He he but, actually, but, you know, it was his most unfavorite album. It's what yeah, he I, said. Yeah, and it's, it's super commercial. And yeah, I mean, it probably it probably is kind of horrible. But what I think what most of us want is let's dance rather than uh, masters of war. I mean, that's what we want because uh, there's there there's a I think there's more of a sort of communal uh, cathartic experience to be had from you know dancing along to uh, something blandly positive than there is to stroking your chin and scratching your nose to something, you know, a deep and profound Leonard Cohen song, you know. Uh, I mean, maybe they're they're more private experiences. But I I do find it endlessly frustrating that we don't have more, like, positive anthems that are where people can just throw caution to the wind and and dance and have a good time. That's, I mean, when we did did some acoustic gigs at Edinburgh during the festival this year and... uh, Half of the gigs, somebody shouted, "Have you not? Somebody like, have you know? Have you not got any happy ones?" And uh, you know, it, it raised a big laugh. And the answer is like, no. And that's, I think that's not good. I, I think that, I think that has to change. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to the beginning just to end. And you know, I told you my DNA test. I'm sure if you had one, you know, it's gonna be pretty way up there. Scottish and anyone who's yeah. uh, who's written "Don't Come Home Too Soon" for the the Scottish uh, football team and what's the latest one? Close your eyes and think of England, which I absolutely yeah. loved. Well, just quickly at the end, what does it mean being Scottish? And for you, what does it mean then being English? Yeah, well, I mean, I always describe myself as half English because I grew up in England between the ages of five and ten and uh, which were quite formative years for me you know it's when I started playing football and listening to music and things um so I've always because of that I've always really despised any streak of anti-Englishness that you that you find you do find in Scotland I mean it doesn't you don't come across it often but you do you do um find it lurking sometimes and sometimes you find it lurking amongst the most urbane civilized people who have very <clears throat> you have a very bitter uh, opinion of all of all english people you know which is just fucking insane um so i i always had this kind of dual nationality thing going on and when i moved back to glasgow in the late sorry the mid 70s i didn't feel like i fitted in at all you know uh, i had to change my accent back from because i had a midlands accent when i was a kid so I had to sort of change that back to a Glasgow accent in order not to get the shit kicked out of me. Because um, I went to quite a tough primary school when I came back. Uh, and I just, I didn't think Glasgow belonged to me in the, the words of the, the immortal song uh, until, probably until we did Barlands in 1990. So all that time, I, I felt like a, a fish out of water, you know. I, you know, I, all that early Delimitri stuff, I, it was all sung in an English accent. I mean, that's partly because of punk, but also partly because I never uh, felt particularly Scottish. But then some things started changing weirdly in the 90s. I remember noticing this travelling up and down from London to Glasgow a lot. Uh, and in fact, more, maybe more in the zeros. Uh, and maybe maybe after Scotland, but it's Parliament or something, Scotland started becoming more Scottish. Uh 
which I, I wasn't sure about. I didn't know whether this was a bad thing or, or a good thing. And I found myself becoming more Scottish and feeling more Scottish when I was in London than I had done previously. And I don't know whether this is just because there is a, there's a slow atomization of the United Kingdom going on that we're not very sure why that, that would be. You know, it would certainly explain Brexit, which I think was effectively just a form of English nationalism. Um, uh, and you've got Scottish nationalism, which on the one hand, it's presented as being a very progressive, almost well, a kind of progressive social democratic movement. But then on the other hand, Scottish nationalism is deeply a deeply suspect conservative um, instinct. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of that kind of identity, I still feel kind of British, even though the, the, even though the British nationalism is like you know, an even dirtier concept than, than English nationalism. You know, um, so yeah, I find all that quite confusing. If you talk to young people, when I say young people, I mean people below the age of 35 <laughs> um, they're they're they've got quite a positive take on Scottishness they're not anti-English uh, they you know they love English culture but they just fucking hate Westminster and they see Westminster as the enemy rightly or wrongly uh, and they've got this attitude that that we need to get out of there um, whereas people of my generation have kind of got an attitude that I can see why political autonomy is a good thing for a small nation, but at the same time, I can also see why it's a bad thing not being represented in the Palace of Westminster as a as a polity, and I can see why that could be extremely dangerous. So um, it, I'm really confused about all that stuff. Uh, I, but we good. It gives you stuff to write about, I guess. You know. Yeah, exactly. And I also I just want to thank you at the end for writing songs that have sort of re reflected. Uh, a lot of the uh, <laughs> trauma and uh, of my relationships <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Our pleasure. Because <laughs> I haven't had the happy one yet, but, which is coming. And finally, oh, thank, you for, thank you for calling me a housewife. <laughs> That's made my day. <laughs> so, Justin, thanks a lot. Yeah. Cheers. You, yeah. you too much appreciated. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it from me and from Justin. Do check out the other interviews. I'll see you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.